15 episodes ago, the one thing that I wanted to tell myself was and try to make sure was that I didn't want to go too Cubs heavy all the time because obviously. Oh, why? Uh, well, the tech, yeah, it is there. But I mean, presumably the Outsports Network reaches across more than the north side of Chicago. So I wanted mm -hmm. to, you know, stretch my uh, stretch the muscles a little bit and bring in teams from elsewhere. I didn't realize. Uh, in recording the podcast, I would be going Astros heavy every single episode. Because uh, oh my god, yeah, yeah that's, that's right. Out. yeah, that's uh, as, that's what as someone following from afar. Like, uh, are, are you just kind of sitting back and enjoying watching the world burn while the Tigers wait to compete next? Uh, yeah, well, I'm. I imagine. I mean, I've been really encouraged by just how many teams have been struck by this. Yeah. Um, you know, even the Mets got hit by the, by some, you know, by some shrapnel. So really, I think it's a matter of time before every team is out of it and oh, yeah. then the Tigers win by default. <laughs> it's, it's all a long con from Alex Avila and, and the, the Illich kids. This, this, yeah. This... You know, they say, you know, listen, Avila, listen, Avila, everyone thinks Avila is, uh, is an idiot because he uh, doesn't spend any money and can't develop any prospects, but He's playing 12-dimensional chess. You guys just don't understand. It's really it's advanced stuff. Somebody has to there. It, 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 <laughs> perhaps the new market inefficiency is just bringing yeah. everybody else down to the 114 loss level. Exactly. It's a war of attrition. Baseball That's is a war of attrition. Yeah. Okay. I say make the season longer, 200 games. Hell yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've been saying that for decades at this point, but that's just because I'm weird like that, I think. Uh, right. so is, is everybody pretty much done with Alex Avila as a GM of the Tigers at this point? Uh, wait, no, Al Avila, Al Avila, different. Yeah, yeah, different. Um, though, though, um, notably, um, I want to say a nice thing about him before, uh, before I get into the next part. Yes, this is um, a podcast. Please do. Yes. Um, so Al Avila, I will, uh, always, I will always, uh, admire him because he, Traded his son, and uh, I really think uh, that show that shows courage. Uh -huh. it, um, it shows integrity, <laughs> and it and it shows your son that you're still more powerful than him. And I think yeah. those are important things to uh, instill upon him. So Alavila, better father than a GM, probably. <laughs> uh, waited for his son to get a concussion and then traded him. Ah. And uh, you got to admire it, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when you can't support um, him anymore, it's, you got to go. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. Kick him out of the nest. He's got to fend for himself now. You, um, all right. That a, said, uh, Al Avila is running um, what I could only assume is a grift. It is like a design grift of he came in and uh, endeared himself to a dying man. And then <laughs> when he died, he conspired with the sun to hoard the money. I think that's what it has to be. Wow. Um, Chris Illich and Alavila are trying to starve the team out of town in a, in a major, in a like major league type move. Mm -hmm. um, not since, not since that Indian team. Have you seen <laughs> such malice from an owner and GM? Uh, I guess the GM was not malicious, but uh, you get the point. So, so uh, uh, during the season, do you anticipate that Ron Gardenhire is going to try to motivate the troops by pulling out a life-size Chris Illich uh, statue and then pulling off random pieces of clothes for every win they have? 
I, I yeah, that's uh, I would love to see it. I would really. I I think uh, I think if you went, I think if you went in reverse, you could motivate the team. Um, I don't know. I I can't. I couldn't really tell you what Chris Illich looks like. I couldn't describe him like right now in my head. But the Illich is traditionally not a uh, not a really attractive family. Yeah, I, I'm just picturing like the Little Caesar mascot for Chris Illich. Yeah, I mean, I'm picturing the Little Caesar mascot wearing Mike Illich's hairpiece. That works. So, uh, yeah. so that's that's the image I got. <laughs> it's, you're now crossing uh, your league with face-off at this point. Right. <laughs> it's all. It's a. It's a. It's a big old big old mixed metaphor. Yes. Uh, so, but uh, yeah, I. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I'm. I'm just going to open the show real fast because. Uh, yeah. I got a note from my editor this week that try not to go seven minutes before telling people what. <laughs> <laughs> so being real professional podcasters, this is the Three Strikes You're Out podcast, the baseball podcast on the Outsports Podcast ep- Network, episode number 16, the Hal Newhauser episode. Yeah, we're going deep into Tiger Hall of Famers with this one. Uh, <laughs> the other voice you are hearing is one of my best Tiger fan friends and a great comedian from New York City, formerly of the Detroit area, Nate Fridson. Nate can be found on Twitter at, at Nate Fridson, and Nate's album, Best Guy So Far, is available on all proper streaming services. Nate, thanks for joining me. How's it going, man? Oh, man, it's going great. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. I, uh, I really I'm, uh, I'm excited to talk Tigers. This is great. It is a pleasure, yes. Talk, talking the uh, extremely rebuilding Tigers. Uh, <laughs> the extremely. They are extremely rebuilding. Well, yeah. What happened there? Uh, 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 yeah, we are uh, we are deep in the rebuild. That is that is what uh, that's what I've been led to believe, anyways. Yes, and and you're familiar with this sensation, are you not? From uh, from your Tiger childhood, that does does I'll, I guess I'll start by asking this: that does the current state of the Tigers? Are you getting real bad flashbacks to like any year in the '90s or any year of the early 2000s up till '06? Um, well, yeah, I, I think, um, uh, I think that, I mean, the 96 Tigers were, you know, the 03 team gets a lot of credit for being the worst team ever. And rightfully so they had the worst record, but yeah, 19, um, they should, yeah, uh, 119. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, man. What a year. Yeah. Uh, but we kept uh, Roger Clemens from getting his 300th win. That yeah. was a great thing we did that year. Doing baseball. Uh, Beat him at uh, we beat him at uh, at the Copa. That was great. Uh, but I really think yeah, '96 is um, yeah, that's one of the worst baseball teams I think ever assembled. Really, is that uh, Bobby Higginson era? Yeah, he was he was around then. That was a that was an Encarnacion Juan Encarnacion. Yeah. Um, there were I mean just the 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 early to mid '90s were just a real real dearth of talent in, uh, in Tiger Town. Yeah, if, if I may, uh, Juan Encarnacion, I believe, famous for eventually losing an eye uh, after getting hit by a ball in the on-deck. Is that true? Yes, I, I believe. If, if I'm remembering right, I, I might have to look this up afterwards to make sure. Uh, but you can make a, a, at least a decent argument that after the 96 Tigers, losing an eye might have been an act of mercy, honestly. Yeah, I, I, yeah you shouldn't. Uh, no one should be forced to watch that. Yeah. That's for sure. And, and what uh, I remember about the, the Tigers of that era specifically is it is it felt like you couldn't define rock bottom because you you felt right. like 96, this has got to be it. But then it just kind of kept going and going. And then it oh, really did. Yeah, it really did. It really did. Yeah, it was really hard to define rock bottom. That's a great way to put it. 
Um, it was, yeah, it, it's just, I don't, uh, I don't, I'm never really going to understand it. I don't, uh, I don't know why this, uh, it has to be this way, but I guess it's just, this is just kind of like the, this is just what it is to be a Tigers fan is that it's, you know, it, uh, it just, people aren't, people aren't going to come here. So you really have to like, you really have to like build up, you know, a good, a good team, a good team around it. And I think that's why the Tigers spent so much time over the last decade, just buying up whatever players they could. Yeah. And I mean, I guess that's part of Dombrowski's philosophy. So that's kind of what he, you know, and, and kind of what he did to, to their credit. I mean, they ended up getting a, consistently good team, especially for one that's, uh, as you just described, in a situation where it's hard to do that in, in a city like yeah. Detroit. Uh, from 2006 to, what was it, 2014, the last time that they made the playoffs? I mean, that was yeah. at least in contention every single year. Uh, yeah, they were, um, they were, you know, what's uh, like a step below the Braves, I guess, is what yeah. you would. Right. They were kind of like that. It was a similar team where it was like also like built around pitching. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in 2006, it's the, I mean, the real stre- the, the starting rotation was good, but the real strength was the bullpen. That was really yeah. what set that team apart. It's always like they've only ever and their park is designed that way. So that's it makes sense to, you know, to build the team with the park in mind. Um, but, yeah, that I mean, that the the talent they were able to amass in that starting rotation was unbelievable oh yeah and and you know it's to always have been in you know it's like of course they were in contention and to come away from that with nothing let me tell you yeah it stings i was gonna say so (laughs) uh the next question was actually gonna be when you look back at that era like do you remember this as uh you know a an overall fun baseball time or is it is kind of that constant the fact that they missed out on the brass ring throughout the entire run is, is that going to be the memory that, that sticks with you? I guess it's uh overall, it is still a fun time because it was like, I mean, at least like going back to like 2006, I was, uh, I was living in Michigan just out, uh, just outside of Detroit at that time. Um, and the tigers had been terrible for a decade, you know, yeah. at least over like 15 years. Um, that actually, no, 92 team was okay. I think I have vague memories of it. 91 team was fine ish. Cecil's first year, I think they were decent, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you had that. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, they had been terrible for so long. Like even in 2006, like people didn't even really get to the idea that the Tigers were good until like the all-star break. Yeah. You know, it was, you could still you could still roll up and like get tickets for you know nothing. And, you know, nobody, like no one was in the park. It was like, it was weird, uh-huh. you know? Cause like, cause the, that's the thing, like people, Detroit ha- has loyal sports fans, but also people who live outside of the city have a tenuous relate or a fraught relationship with the city. I think is a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, people don't all, people will look for any reason not to come downtown. And so, if the, if the Tigers are terrible, people are going to be like, oh, I'm not going to come see that awful team when it's like, what do you have going on? You know, you're, you know, you're, you're you know, you're unemployed in Metro Detroit like everyone else. Shut up. You know, you can go to the, you can go to the Tigers yeah. game. Do, do, so, do they think Comerica Park is located along eight mile? Is that right? Yeah, it's not. It's in like the, you know, one of the busier, busier parts of town. And like, so it's all it's ridiculous. So but 
when but when the team is good, they people get really excited about it. People get you know the, to the city it was like it was like built on like a and on like a bottomless well of nostalgia. You know, yeah. it's just people just love people love it. So they you know when this when a team is good, they will flood down there and people will be hanging out before games, after games. So the 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 return of that energy, or for me, really the first time I really remember it. Like the last time they were like really great before that was like 87. So I don't have a ton of memories of that. I was four. Right. So, um, but, uh, I mean, I kind of do, I kind of remember watching Trammel a little, but you know, Trammel and Whitaker, but you know, uh, but regardless, like the, you know, that energy, like coming back to the city and people being excited about the Tigers again, you know, the Red Wings had had some, had had some, success the pistons had had some success the lions um never mind but uh you know every but the but the tigers were like had not really had that success in a long time and so it was, that was very exciting the 2016 was so fun and then they started adding power to it um and then of course the miguel cabrera trade i'll always you know have a fond memory of that yeah that worked um, out. Okay. That worked out pretty well. He's hey, you, you know, got Cameron Maybin back this year. So yeah, it turns out that that's true. a perfect trade for his second his second time. If we can get Andrew Miller back, um, <laughs> that's, uh, we need him. We need him on the team. Cardinals, I'll be very happy. Yes, that's that works and out. Then, okay. uh, too. Yeah, <laughs> but but that was it. Was just exciting, you know. That was exciting. Like the Tigers were relevant, and it was exciting. And Dabrowski was making the sort of moves that we were used to seeing out of the Yankees and the Red Sox and the people who, and the teams that like dominated baseball coverage at that time. So it was, yeah, it was, it was really exciting. And I, you know, I was at, I was lucky enough to be uh, my, my family. We all went to um, game two of the 06 series. Um, So we got to see the, uh, the pine tar game. The Kenny Rogers yeah, we did it. You know, we, of course, had no idea. We are, you know, we did. We were watching the game. Mm-hmm. So we did not know uh, that there was a Pine Tar game happening. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I like and it, yeah. From afar without knowing uh, in the stands was everybody just like, ah, so is just Tony La Russa just going to be a douchebag every inning? Is that what's going on? Because well, I, I think, well, I, you know, to be honest, like I just figured uh, because it was the World Series, just everything takes longer. <laughs> You know, they, yeah. I just figured that there was just like a bunch of, you know, I mean, I, you know, kind of just assumed Tony LaRusso was a prick. I mean, uh, you, Good know, assumption. you know, I, uh, I, I mean, I personally have never liked the Cardinals. So, uh, you know, because uh, that was, you know, the Tigers have gone up against them so many times yeah. in the World Series. Also a good base operating assumption, I think. It, uh, yeah, right. So- no, I, I forgot I'm talking to a Cubs fan. Okay, yeah. yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> so I wasn't even trying to suck up to you there. Yeah, um, I, I think the one the one constant outside of Rob Manfred hate for this podcast is Cardinal hate on pretty much every episode. Hate. Yeah. That's so, great. Here, I'm sorry to take you on a walk here. I got to get all right. Do, do your thing, man. Uh, so uh, very unprofessional. But here we go. Um, um, but. Uh, sorry, what were we talking about? Go back. Uh, sorry, so, I got distracted. Uh, sorry. Six World Series. Uh, so I, I guess. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. So I was at that. So like, you know, from what I saw, like from what we saw, we just thought Kenny was pitching a gem. Yes, Kenny Rogers. Yeah. You know, like, but it and seemed to me that was the one know? performance the Tigers got that series. That the only one. 
the yeah. only good thing that happened that series. Yeah, any length and without any meltdowns in the mound, it seemed like. Uh, yeah. Because, I mean, looking back at it, the Tigers, especially in 2006, clearly were the superior team in that matchup, yeah. that 83-win Cardinals organ, uh, group. But uh, it just seemed like the pitchers kept making errors every single game. It ever, yeah, it's, uh, it will haunt us forever. Yeah, and um, I don't know what happened. I mean, I think I think like really what the problem was with that team was they were the um, they were done early. Yes, they they won there. They took we wrapped up our series against oh, yeah. the A's, and then uh, and then it was just you know we just had to wait. Yeah, it and they was, just went, they were just going around town like being lauded as gods everywhere they went. So it was like you know I mean they I think they they took their eye off the ball. It, yeah, it was such an accomplishment coming uh, four years after losing the 119 games to make the World Series. And they did it in such an exciting way with uh, Ordonia's walking off the A's. It, yeah. I could see that that kind of being like their Aaron Boone moment to give just like a, a most basic point of comp comparison where, yeah, you kind of just something gets lost in between all the time they had to wait, as you said uh, yeah. before before starting up uh, the, the World Series. And I, I, and I don't want to be, usually I don't fall back on, you know, playoff experience or intangibles as, as a big thing. But mm-hmm. that Cardinals team they were running up against, well, an 83-win team during the regular season was also a core that knew what playing in the World Series was all about. They'd been there just yeah. two years against the Red Sox. And they'd yeah. also gone to, I think, game six of the championship series in 05 against the Astros. So mm. it seems like that that was one of the few years where you have definite evidence of playoff experience actually beating an inexperienced playoff yeah. team. Yeah, it matters. It really does. I, I, I honestly think it's overblown almost every year, and it seems like it's just it's a talking point for people on MLB Network to yell mm-hmm. about. But but that year, I mean, that that's the evidence that, that they need to look to when they fall back on that. Uh, and right, it's unfortunate right. that happened in the Cardinals' benefit, as most unfortunate things tend to be. Um, right. <laughs> So, yeah. um, looking at um, Miguel Cabrera and right. uh, kind of jumping off of that for a second. Um, actually, actually, before I get to Cabrera, let me ask you this: okay. uh, in that in that era of 06 to 14, when did you get the sense that the Tigers' bullpen really fell off from that dominant group in 06 to just the garbage fire it was by the end of that playoff run? Because we know that's the one thing that really kept them from advancing. Yeah. When they had Scherzer and Verlander and mm-hmm. even Price. I mean, I don't think, I honestly don't think it was ever as good as it was in 06. Um, I think, or maybe that was just that, like, I don't have, I, I will be honest. I don't have all the stats in front of me, but I, I feel like maybe it was just the shock of seeing a good bullpen mm-hmm. at all. So maybe that's why I think that, but it was, they, it was definitely by the time. Uh, I mean, I think, I, I think by the time they got Victor, it was not even, it was not even what it was. Um, yeah. And they stopped putting, and you, cause they stopped, they kept getting, they kept getting these really like, like uh, mental, like just uh, fragile closers. Yes. You know, and they kind of like always had them even, you know, like Todd Jones was the, you know, was the, you know, I guess, was like I guess the the best one they had. <laughs> and when you're saying you know? that, saying a lot, yeah. And yeah, uh, Todd, I mean uh, Todd Jones, I think is only good because 
I'm sure he would pitched as if he was worried a gay man was going to sneak up behind him at any moment and scare the right. hell out of him. <laughs> right. But, I mean, K-Rod was past his prime. Right. And, uh, oh, God. Verde. Uh, what's that? Jose Valverde? Yeah, Valverde. Um, they had, uh, oh, God, what was his name? Uh, they liked uh, Octavio Dotel cl- uh, closed right. some games for them. Uh, you know who uh, I remember? I, I mean, they got they got Joe Nathan. Yeah, at, at the at the tail end, who has now who has like made my life miserable twice now. <laughs> um, as but he was like sent here to make, to make me upset mm-hmm. as a Tigers fan, to both of, for for being awesome on the Twins and being terrible on the Tigers. Yes, it's 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 not often that uh, that you run into someone with that personal grudge against Joe Nathan. But yeah, I get it. It's, no, uh, I know it's I he's one Nathan I will not uh, I will not cape for. Uh, I, I do not stand Joe Nathan. Joe Nathan, by the way, uh, 2016 Cub World Champ uh, for I think no, only, really? Yeah, yeah. That uh, in the time before they acquired Aroldis Chapman, they were trying to get bullpen depth anywhere, and I think they'd signed him as kind of a hey, this guy's old, coming off an injury, but let's see if yeah. he's got any veteranness left during spring training. And I'm pretty sure they tried him for like maybe two or three games during like July yeah. of that year and then saw that. Yeah. Let me tell you, I didn't even see those games. Let me tell you, he didn't have it. No, no. Oddly he did, enough. He didn't have it. Yeah. Did not have it, but still got a ring out of it. So that's a shame. Yeah. That's a damn you know, shame. Certain, certain bad side effects to, I'm to, sorry to hear that. I really am. That really, uh, I mean, I'm happy for you, but I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. The, the worst thing that the Cubs have done to the Tigers since the 1907, 08 world series. Right. <laughs> Uh, so getting back to what I wanted to ask you about, uh, Miggy, for a second. So yeah. we are, unfortunately, pretty clearly into his decline phase and have been for the past two or three years at this point now. I would say, uh, yeah, I would say, yeah, yeah, two or three years. Absolutely. Uh, Sadly, yeah. and I, I, I hate to keep asking depressing questions, but do you find it's more painful to watch him in his decline phase, knowing that he couldn't get that elusive World Series with the Tigers uh, in that insanely incredible prime he had? Yeah, I mean, that is probably the thing that uh, makes me – that is probably the thing that makes me the, the most sad about it. Um, I – because, again, like I have the memories of the Tigers being good and of, you know, seeing JV's no-hitters and uh, getting to watch that insane, uh, you know, uh, rotation and lineup, frankly, as – you know, uh, all the great hitters I got to see play for the Tigers, um, even like, you know, weird good ones like Sheffield was, you know, was yeah. a weird Tiger to, to a, a guy I never expected to see a Tiger, to be a Tiger. Um, but yeah, Miggy, uh, Miggy not getting the ring, um, you know, I mean, getting the, the triple crown and the MVP is cool. And, but yeah, man, it's really it's that is probably that is probably the saddest part of it, and the most confounding, really, because mm-hmm. it's really astonishing that. I mean, he's I, I I try to you know I don't know I I'm of course biased, but he's of course one of the best hitters I've ever seen. Yeah. I've never you know I've never I've, I there aren't many I've seen that are better. I I know that I mean there are definitely Hall of Famers I've seen, but he's of course going, yeah. but um. 
but yeah, it's real. It doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense. I, I feel like I'm at a loss for words, and I'm just stammering here. But I don't like. I honestly don't. You know, I don't know how else to react to it. Yeah, I mean that that's unfortunately how baseball works. And and I it's mean, hard. Least, it's hard to get a ring. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's you really hard. Roster of incredible players who never got one from Ted yeah. Williams to Lee Banks to Ken Griffey Jr. And mm-hmm. yeah, some of the all-time all-timers uh, just never got some. Sometimes not even close. Uh, right. Banks and Junior never even made a World Series, let alone never won one. Uh, and, and Cabrera, at least he's got. He was on the Marlins in '03. That was his. Yeah, he year. won one there. Yeah, yeah. so he, he did win one, but it's also kind of like <laughs> you were almost too young to appreciate what that meant. And yeah, he was too so- young to appreciate it, but I at least like. Like he at least was involved with the team, you know. Yeah. He was like he was a part of that team. Yeah. It's not like when, like, for instance, Joe Nathan gets one where he was like <laughs> had a cup of coffee and is hanging out. Oh yeah. And he, he was one of know, the weapons on that '03 Marlins team by the end. Uh, yeah, it, and like it, a valuable switch and a valuable player to in switches and like you know um, from left to third and like he was you know right. he was good. Yeah, skinny Miggy back when he could switch positions, but exactly uh, right, man, yeah. what a time. Yeah, it, there, it, that was uh, that was they sold us on Prince Fielder. That was um, <laughs> going to keep Miggy in shape because now he has to play third. <laughs> Did uh, Prince Fielder convince Miggy to go vegan too? Right. Yeah, I, I have not seen. Uh, maybe I mean, like, well, there's no meat in liquor, right? So you know, <laughs> I think yes. <laughs> that, that that really should be a, a motto throughout baseball for most players. Yeah, I think I'm there's sure. no meat and booze. <laughs> the great Grover Cleveland Alexander once said. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> Prince Fielder's nickname to me should have been Vegan Fail, honestly. Vegan, yeah. <laughs> so we will uh, do a quick uh, promo read here for a second, and then we're going to sure. kind of jump to the uh, national scene so we can go off on Manfred and kind of do it. get that uh, requirement out of the way. So give me 20 seconds here to read uh, what's coming up tomorrow on the Upsports Podcast Network. On this week's Sports Kiki, Alex welcomes back old friend Steve Buckley to talk about coming out in a fast food burger restaurant and how the landscape for LGBTQ sports media members has changed ever since Buckley came out himself in 2011. A longtime baseball writer, Alex and Buckley also talk about the fallout from MLB's sign-stealing scandal and whether this is an even more detrimental scandal than steroids. New episode is out on Saturday here at Outsports Podcast Network. And with that out of the way, get back into Skype mode. Uh, Man, what a voice! You have, what a voice you have, really. You, I mean, this is uh, really perfect for this. I, I I tried reading the promo last week and stuttered through about five different errors. So I'm gonna I'll, I'll take that compliment <laughs> if I can get it. So it's, uh, and it's also hell a uh, transition because uh, yeah, we're jumping back on to Rob Banford and uh, and Houston for a second here. Yeah, uh, let's do it. Start. Let me start by asking you this: uh, Have you ever seen Monty Python's Life of Brian? Yes. 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 So. On Sunday, there was an announcement on Twitter kind of going across. Rob Manfred will discuss the sign-stealing scandal in a press conference today at 4.30. And I flashed on to that scene where Michael Palin as Pontius Pilate is asking the people of Judea the name of the person he would like them to release. And because mm-hmm. he has the impediment, they keep yelling, Willie Wadger! Willie Wadger! <laughs> right. And so by the end, like— all of Judea is like on the ground, feet rolling in the air, laughing their ass off at, at the speech impediment from Pontius Pilate. And yeah. then there's a moment where John Cleese reads off a scroll with about 30 different S names, and Graham Chapman, as biggest dickus, grabs the scroll and lisps out, I'll speak to them, Pontiff. 
and there's a moment <laughs> where John Cleese's eyes bug out, and he just yells, no! And I felt that that was everybody in MLB looking at that tweet saying, Rob Manford is about to discuss the sign-stealing scandal on that day, because right. every time you see Rob Manfred try to make some chicken salad out of this chicken shit, you just know exactly how this is going to go. I mean, he's, you know, it's, it's amazing that like, uh, it's, it, I guess this is like a testament to how good a commissioner is because, yes. uh, like the good commissioners make it go away. Yes. You know, when David, St- when there was a, when there was a referee fixing games in the NBA, they dealt with it and they made it go away. Mm-hmm. You know, like it still gets brought up and there are some people who think basketball is fixed, but for the most part, you make it go away. Guys like Manfred and Roger Goodell are in inca- and Gary Batman are incapable of making stuff go away. They can't do it. Oh, absolutely. They're just, they're, they're, just the, they're just these inept guys. And it's, it's really like, has, I mean, have you, do you, would you say there has been a good baseball commissioner in our lifetime? Uh, I mean, I'm 36. Yeah. I'm 41. You can, Maybe stretch the definition of good and say maybe Bart Giamatti, uh, just because, I mean, the one thing he accomplished as a commissioner was he banned Pete Rose from the game and, in retrospect, justifiably so, and then had a heart attack and died. So he could fuck it up beyond that. But (laughs) yeah, uh, so maybe low bar, though, you know, all commissioners have a grabber after eight months. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, just in terms of like, not even good, but can you think of a commissioner who's a strong leader in our lifetime who we look to and go, well, I've at least got confidence in this guy. I, I'm at a loss. I'm seriously at a loss. I mean, yeah. and I, I mean, I, it's like, it's crazy to like go, but it's cra- like Manfred might be like worse than Selig though. It's tough. I mean, that that's a true Trump George W. Bush comp to me. Where it's close, though, right? Yeah. I, mean, I, I didn't think this this close to the C League era. We'd be thinking that we'd have somebody anywhere close to the realm of how bad he was, let alone could possibly be worse. And as people have made the argument, and I think it's a decent argument, you know, at least Bud C League, you could tell, kind of liked baseball. Yes. Well, yeah, he owned a team. I mean, yeah, yeah sure. He was completely uh, he was completely corrupt. <laughs> it was in a complete conflict of interest. A used car dealer corrupt? Don't tell me. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, but I, I think that the current state of baseball leadership, and it really the baseball leadership for the past almost 30 years, goes back to a decision that the owners made in our lifetimes. That, that uh, to me, and I've kind of been putting this together in my mind, the mental timeline this week, there's a real jumping off point from around 1992 or three, I want to say. Uh, do you remember Faye Vincent at all, his commissionership after Bart Giamatti? Uh, Vaguely, yes. Yeah. yes. He was known uh, mostly as someone who oversaw a lockout during spring training in 1990. Right. And he actually worked with the players' union as that lockout was going on to try to prevent it from becoming what eventually became the strike of 94 that canceled the season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And ended up conceding, uh, I think, a raise in minimum wage to the players union. I think it went up to like 100000 that year and a few other things, but making like actual genuine concessions within the span of maybe like two or three weeks of negotiation. Uh, okay. And I think they managed to play the, the whole season in, in 1992. I think they might have had uh, maybe a delay for like a week in the season. But No, I believe, yeah, I believe you're right. I believe they did. 
So um, he was doing operating within the actual best interest of baseball and doing that. But that also meant that the owners who at that point had pretty much decided that, that they were going to help come hell or high water, were going to try to destroy that union and institute that salary cap that they'd been wanting ever since yeah. the concept was originated. That, I think, solidified in their mind that we need to get rid of this guy. So in uh, 92 or 93, that's when they kind of had a palace coup and uh, issued like a vote of no confidence to Faye Vincent. And that's when they right. installed the C-League as the commissioner. And everybody kind of knew, OK, well, it's in the bag from then on. But that yeah. is when ownership said that, OK, this is our priority, that what we want in a leader of this sport. It's not for someone who has the best interest of the sport in mind. It's not someone who is proactive in anticipating a potential PR disaster and heading it mm-hmm. off. It is someone whose whose job, first and foremost, is to break this players' union and right. be a mouthpiece for ownership. And right. so can't be surprised then that we've had 30 years of this kind of leadership that responds to crises in this way, because the owners told us in 1992, that's not what we want in a commissioner. Right. Yeah. They, they are not looking for integrity. Not at so. all. And, and it, so the pattern since then, and this is something that, that you're as familiar with as I am, is that anytime there's, there's a, a problem in baseball, be it labor unrest, be it steroids, mm-hmm. be it now the sign-stealing scandal, that the commissionership, first first and foremost, pretends it doesn't exist. Right. Uh, until it, it go gets, away. until it gets right. to and like And the Astros were a hot team. So, yeah. it, you know, it was, they were a, a public team, as the betters would say. There were books being written about how the Houston Astros are the model franchise. Hell, Ben, yes. one of uh, baseball uh, sabermetrics and baseball Twitter's golden children, wrote uh, wrote that book that came out a couple of years ago about the Houston Astros being this is the team everybody needs to emulate. So of right. course, the, and it, uh, honestly, yeah. it looked like that. I mean, they yeah. had built a good farm system. They were developing players. You know. Yeah, not just developing players, but doing it in a way that was so different from the rest of baseball, where right. they would, uh, get not just a good good hitting team, but a team that also made contact in an era where contact is such a precious commodity that their contact rate was so far above everybody else. Right. And, and so because of that and because they were popular and because they kept making the World Series, uh, Manfred, like Seelig before him, was okay. Let's sweep that under the rug as long as we can. Maybe it won't become a huge crisis. And then when mm. the word gets out there, it goes from nobody knows at all about it to all of a sudden it's the biggest crisis in sports, not just baseball, right. but in sports. In and sports, there, people. Yeah. I mean, people who don't like baseball are weighing in on it. Oh yeah, you know? yeah. People who don't like baseball and at least know Houston and know what the Houston Astros are all about at this point. They, know they did, yeah. yeah. And their response to that then is always to uh, strike back, first of all, with like half measures that, uh, right. and this goes back to like the C-League playbook for steroids, where I think the first thing that they were able to propose as a solution was like a 25 game, like not just ban, not ban, but like they were keeping their eye on you for 25 games. It wasn't even. Yeah. You're like, what you're, you're, they're going to watch you change. Like what, I don't understand what that means. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. Know. Uh, and that that's similar to to what what Manfred has done in, in the wake of, of the sign stealing again, and and uh, mm-hmm. and then when that doesn't work, uh, I, their strategy is then to throw up their hands and blame the players union because again that's ownership's priority, right? No, yeah, they will he will protect ownership at all costs. Um, I mean, it's like do you do you, how 
how much do you think, how much do you believe ownership was aware? Um, I think uh, Houston ownership was incredible. Uh, excuse me, gosh, losing my, losing my voice on this. Yeah. <laughs> Getting emotional. Yeah, it's infuriating. Getting... <laughs> um, Houston ownership was Im- immensely aware because one of the things that's come out uh, since the Wall Street Journal report is that Manfred tried to uh, sweep under the rug that right. Houston, uh, the Houston front office had been doing this, or at least researching this since 2016, before Carlos Beltran and the 2017 Astros kind of made it their thing uh, with the code breaker stuff. So right. there is no question in my mind that Jim Crane knew about it. And right. I, I'd be willing to bet that it was. Well, yeah, you know, Jim Crane. Well, yeah, we know Jim Crane knew about it. But, yeah. Uh, he's been rather flippant. But and given that, especially what we saw this year in the World Series with the Washington Nationals going out of their way to implement this incredibly complex and incredibly time consuming sign changing scheme every time they played in Houston, I'm willing mm-hmm. to guess that most everybody in baseball knew about this and just nobody was willing to go on the record about it. Why do you think that is? Uh, because. I think it's kind of the classic baseball, almost, I guess, omerta is the most complicated word about it, that that that, that locker room mentality of whatever uh, happens here stays here. And right, that it's like it's in-house, you deal with this like a, it's fam- it's a family issue. Yeah, yeah. and it, 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 it always takes like that, the one guy who, for whatever reason, and it happened to be Mike Fires this time, but for whatever yeah. reason decide, okay, my my commitment to my current teammates supersedes my commitment to what the Houston clubhouse was in 2017. And you see in the, in the reaction to Mike fires, I mean, hell David Ortiz went off him today uh, in Red Sox camp, called him a snitch. Yeah. Uh, Really? So yeah, you see how, yeah. Yeah. Big poppy, not a fan of Mike fires uh, also defending Rob Manfred. So that's fun. Uh, Man. What a, what an odd person. Yeah. You hate when guys, (laughs) Kind of, kind of show their ass a little bit like that, but uh, but th- but that's the how pervasive. I mean, any lot- anytime you're going to go against labor to to side with the bosses, I'm sorry, get yeah. out of here, yeah, get out of here, bootlicker, come on, no thank you, <laughs> yeah. Uh-uh. Uh, but then Alex Rodriguez will say something that sounds kind of in the vicinity of a joke, and then they'll laugh at full volume for 30 seconds and move on to the next right. thing. I'm sure. Uh, that, uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I think it is that all pervasive just mentality of we everything in here stays in here, and it's it's the fear of breaking that code of silence that that yeah. also leaves it, that makes this go on for so long. And honestly, uh, kind of putting all this together, I think management uses the players' fear of that to kind of to keep the fo- actually keep focus their their blame on the union. Because Manfred, over the past week, has kind of kept pushing the narrative of, right. well, uh, we had to go to the union to to see that we could get immunity for the Astros to talk to me in in confidence, and because of that immunity, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't actually punish any of the players. And the thing is, and Tony Clark needs to do a better job of getting his message out there. That's yeah. not the way at all. Like, Rob right? Man, Rob yeah, Manfred, no, we need a more we need a more vocal. Uh, uh, assertive uh, uh, players union leader. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That has, yeah, it's disappointing. It's disappointing to see that from Tony Clark. I love Tony Clark, but. uh, Oh yeah. Disappointing. Disappointing to see it. But yeah, nice. I met him once. Nice guy. Nice. I met him at the, uh, the Negro League Museum in Kansas city. That's awesome. Real real nice dude. 
I didn't know you had uh, gone to the Negro League Museum. Yeah, it was uh, a couple a uh, couple years ago. I was there with the Sklarks and we went. Uh, nice, and, uh, nice. Went. It was, it's amazing. It's um, my favorite places in baseball. Yeah, it's uh, incredible. Quick digression, since we're going to get on this this topic yeah. for a second. What was your favorite thing you saw at the Negro League Museum? If if I can, if you can remember anything off the top of your head. Uh, if you don't, that's okay. Cause I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't have like a specific thing. I guess we met, um, there was the guy who was the, uh, the president of it was oh, there. Mark. Yes. He's awesome. Uh, so I, I guess it would be him, honestly, it's, if I had to say, uh, we got to meet him and like sit down with him and he like spoke, he's like talked with us for like, 20 minutes that's an amazing and yeah it was like i was like you need to run for office you're uh you have a gift oh yeah yeah uh, he's got he's, great twitter presence too it's a that uh like, he's just uh, like you can't not talk to him you know yeah, yeah. Uh, so that he would be him honestly the, the stories he's got too with the satchel page stories and buck o'neill that he can just rattle off the top of his head i'll just tell you about it amazing yeah. Yeah, my favorite, I brought this up because my favorite thing that I saw, I was at the Negro League Museum probably about a decade ago now, and it still like implanted itself in my mind as soon as I saw it. It was um, on its on the historic timeline. They had a clipping yeah. from a Kansas newspaper, and I don't remember what, I would assume like the 20s, maybe 30s, but yeah. around that era. And it was a clipping for a game from a local traveling Negro League team playing against the Wichita, Kansas uh Wichita, Kansas, Ku Klux Klan. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> An afternoon baseball game. And I, did, I could not believe, I mean, talk about something that represents its era perfectly in terms of how not just that this is the kind of thing that could happen in the 30s, but you could also yeah. just report about it in the newspaper and no one would think, yeah, of course, yeah, let's go see the KKK against the Negro Leaguers. Why not? Right. I, and, can't, I, can't imagine, I can't imagine running the bases in a sheet. <laughs> I uh, I I think that'd be like terrible. Yeah, well, it worked for Ty Cobb though. Right, <laughs> the Tigers. There we go. Yeah. So uh, I guess yeah. On that note, yeah. Um, Rob Manfred, not worse than the KKK, but uh, certainly in the realm of that. I guess we can. <laughs> yeah, he's. I mean, uh, I like the thing is, is that like he's clearly. Clearly not doing enough, but also I don't know what I want him to do. You know that, you know, the thing, like I'm not letting him off the hook, but people have brought up to me, like, do you think they should be banned for, um, from playoff contention for a year? Not enough? I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I mean, then what's the point of playing the Astros then if, if they ban him from contention for a year? Exactly. Like why, but like, like why would, yeah. Why would the fans go? Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. You're you're kind of killing baseball in one of your markets. So, uh, yeah, I certainly would understand that. Uh, do you feel that I don't know what it is? What is it? Fines? I mean, nobody cares about that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, it's tough to find like a really acceptable punishment. But I, I guess what we're looking for from Rob Manfred is the sense of competent and decisive leadership. And just, just yes. there's somebody on top who's not a management lackey and we're getting anything but that. Just, just even as a symbolic, right? Thing, it would be good. Yeah, even yeah, even as a, exactly, even as like a gesture. Yeah. Like you know, they like you know, I'll say like you know, I 
uh, it brings me no joy to say this, but you know, that uh, my beloved Justin Verlander was involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even he's been like making like comments about it, about this that I think like she should be fined for, <laughs> you know, like and he's giving, he's giving these, like he said in an interview recently, he made a joke about, you know, adva- about all the uh, advanced, uh, you know, methods they used. Yeah. It's like, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're, you're a dick. You're being a dick right now. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, like Houston's in a situation where it's not possible for any of them, any of them to be dicks, but yeah, none of them are helping themselves. And, and honestly, yeah, they're, they're starting to lean well, like, in the heel turn. Right, who is it? What one person gave like actually like a, what seemed to be like a contrite apology. Yeah. Uh, um, Erwin Gonzalez did. And then Korea, yeah. Correa's first response before he got into it with Bellinger and the Dodgers showed right. some kind of self-awareness, but yeah. Right. That, and they're actually starting to kind of lean into how heelish they've been, uh, which honestly seems like you might as well. Cause there's, there's nothing else for them to do with this. I mean, point. the thing is that it's like the rest of it's going to, they're going to carry this the rest of their careers. Um, it's impossible. Like, not. do you think, do you think this is enough to keep JV out of the hall? No, no. Uh, I, and I talked about a little bit about this last week, but the hall actually has a few people in, in Cooperstown right now who uh, have precedent with sign stealing. Uh, you have Leo DeRocher who led the 1951 giants when they won the pennant, mm-hmm. uh, the giants, okay. won the pen- giants won the pennant. Yeah. That right, was right. 50 years later revealed to be a, a giant sign stealing scheme from like the middle oh. of Iran. Oh yeah. Yeah. Really? Uh, shot heard around the world uh, was the result of a, I think like a 13 and a half game comeback they made that season. And it was all because they started stealing signs from their center field clubhouse. The uh, shot heard around the world. There was a second shooter is what you're saying. Yes, yes was, indeed. Uh, on the grassy knoll. There was, someone, there was someone on the knoll. <laughs> yes. Uh, knew we shouldn't have installed the knoll. Damn it. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, again, going back to the Tigers, uh, Hank Greenberg, in his autobiography, admitted in, I think, uh, 1940 when they won the pennants that they had the signs that year. Oh, uh, wow. So, yeah. so that, And that's just the two that I know off the top of my head. So, yeah, when it comes down to voting for the Hall of Fame, and especially given right, that— Right, but that's like, in, that's like years later. That's right. like in retrospect. Right. Yeah, I, it wouldn't surprise me, if, especially when Beltron comes up in five years, that people are going to make him wait. But I think— Oh, it, yeah, for sure. People yeah. are definitely going to make him wait. But I think eventually voters are going to look at, like, the Cooperstown precedent of, well, we already have these guys in there, so it's kind of unfair to hold the current Astros to a different standard. Uh, and I, Yeah, I think Verlander will have an easier time getting in, but it's, it's certainly going to be something that they're going to make him answer for. Yeah. I'd be curious to, like, I mean, depending on what the rest of Altuve's career looks like, yeah. I'd be curious um, because that slow-mo of him telling them not to touch his shoulder – has uh you know that's become like the image for this you know amazing isn't it that he's gone from one of the legit most fun players in baseball and somebody that most ever- likable most yeah. as a short person i yeah. was very excited about his uh his dominance yes did not come up to bat to randy newman's song thankfully but uh but, <laughs> yeah he's gone from that to i mean that is what people are going to remember from el Tube. yeah don't rip off my uniform uh right and it's yeah, it's it's sad in that way. But uh, you, you so you believe in the whole buzzer thing? I mean, at this point, yeah, I, I, it's hard I not to believe it, right? Because right. they're trying to spin it like it's a tattoo. Right, of course, yeah. And then and the tattoo says Melanie, which yeah, unless you don't want everybody to know what your favorite Weird Al song is, I. <laughs> 
uh, obscure deep cuts right there. But, uh, <laughs> what is your favorite Weird Al song, Nate Fridson, to close this podcast out? Man, um, throwing these left and righty, yeah, I know. For um, I guess for an original, probably dare to be stupid. Good call. Um, yeah. and then for a um, for like a parody, I would say probably uh, Gump. No, oh, nice. That that's yeah, that's going deep a bit. The President's of the United States of America from. Like the mid '90s, I think. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. I'm a yeah. I'm a '90s baby. So my, my, uh, yeah, my favorite original yeah. is "One More Minute" because I still remember the first time I ever heard it, literally falling off my bed in a laughing fit. Uh, yeah. And I think parody, I might have to go with "Word Crimes" from the from the most recent one, the the Robin Thicke. Yeah. Yeah. As an English major, if you start working grammar into a four minute <laughs> song, I mean, you got me. And it's uh, writing cliches, writing the wrongs of cliches, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Nate Fridson, anything else you'd like to plug uh, while I still got you here? Uh, no, just follow me at Nate Fridson on Twitter at, at uh, N-A-T-E-F-R-I-D-S-O-N. And, uh, you know, post uh, about shows there and jokes and thoughts I have during the day. So, check me out. And seeing you on stage is always a joy. And uh, Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you for being on the show, my friend. Oh, this is great. Thank you so much for having me.